Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Well, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Bill Sievert, and I am one of the acting elders here at the church. Um, over the last few weeks, you've had a chance to hear from a couple, or actually a few of us, um, and each of us has a different style, each of us has a different personality, but I can guarantee you that all of us has the same goal and the same hope, and that is, we express it as the mission of our church, and that is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. So I'm glad that you are all here today and glad for those who are online with us. Um, like I said, we all have a little bit different style, and today you've got me. I'm not a Chris Piper. I am not going to engage you. I am not going to say, you know, you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, and the whole church says, that's just not me, right? But I am who I am, so um, I'm going to do my best up here praying that Christ would speak through me. So this is kind of a bridge. Um, we just finished up our series on tolerable sins. And if you haven't been with us through that series, uh, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek title that Pastor Matt came up with to talk about some of those things in our lives that are truly sinful, but we tolerate them. We, we try to make them okay because they're not so bad. Things like anger and discontentment and selfishness. But really, no sin is tolerable to God. So that was a very convicting series for me. And I hope it has been for you as well and continues to work on your life just like it's working on mine. And then as Matt um, said earlier, in a couple of weeks, he's going to be starting a series on the book of Genesis. And so I'm looking forward to that series as well. And we're going to meet some people in that series. And one of those guys we're going to meet is Adam. Adam was the first human, as we know. He was the first man. And so Adam became the first father. And so we'll see Adam. And we're going to see a guy by the name of Noah. Now, you might be a little bit familiar with Noah's story. Noah is the guy who built the ark. Um, God destroyed the world in a flood because it was so wicked. Um, but Noah was seen as a righteous man. And Noah was a father. And so Noah was able to bring his, his family with him um, into the ark. So we'll see a little bit about Noah. And then there's a guy by the name of Abraham. Now, Abraham is a guy for who over over 3,000 years has been known to a lot of people as Father Abraham. And Abraham had a son, and his name is Jacob, and Jacob, or Isaac, and then Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and they became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so those are some of the characters that we're going to meet in the book of Genesis. And, of course, I'm bringing all those guys up because they were all dads. And it has been mentioned here. Today is Father's Day. And so it's a very special day where we get to recognize um, what it looks like to be a dad from a biblical perspective. And so not to overlook any other roles that we may have, and certainly not to ignore the ladies that are here with us today, but I really want to speak to the men. And specifically, I want to speak to you men who are or might be sometime in the future fathers. And I want to extend that not just to those who are biological fathers, as was mentioned in the prayer time, but those who are father figures, whether that be a stepdad, whether that be a grandfather, 
Whether that be somebody who has stepped up and served in Kids Hope and they're the only father figure that kid may have. I want to speak to all of those of us, myself included, who are fathers. And I am a dad. Um, I've got a slide here of my family. So this is the fam. So myself there, my beautiful wife, Jill, our son, David, our daughters, Laura and Hannah. And then the next slide is my dad. There we go. So my dad passed away 13 years ago. Um, he was sick for several years before that. My dad got sick about the time I realized that I didn't know everything. And so um, that time in my life where I was really, uh, I, I could have really valued his input in my life. Um, as a kid, he was there. Um, but as, an, as a young adult, he wasn't. Not always. And so I miss my dad. Next slide is my dad's dad. This is my grandpa. And then the next slide after that is my other grandpa. They're both gone as well. They were both World War II veterans, one Army, one Navy. They didn't let that get between them too often. Um, And then the last slide is my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. But specifically my father-in-law, he's still in my life, and he's played an important role in my walk with Christ. Um, Jill and I met, and... Tuesday will be 25 years that we've been married. Yeah, I don't know how she's done it. (laughs) So on our first date, um, her dad went with us. So come over for dinner sometime. We'll tell you about it. It was it's a story (laughs) during that during that time. um, Jim asked me about church. I didn't go to church at the time. I wasn't walking with Christ. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm sure it was something to the effect of no. (laughs) And Jim said, "Um, if you're going to date my daughter, you're going to go to church. Oh, well, I was 24 years old. I knew everything. And so my thought was, well, I'm 24. Your daughter's 22. We're both out of the house. I'm betting right now I have more control over your little angel than you do. Well, I was wrong, and so the next week in church, (laughs) yeah, you laugh. The next week in church, Christ got a hold of me, and that changed my life. And not perfect, 25 years later, still working on it, but absolutely changed my life. So Jim's an important part of my life, and then ultimately... The best father figure I have is my heavenly father. And so I want to talk about today about what it looks like to be a biblical father. What does it look like to be a dad through the lens of the Bible, through the lens of Christian faith? Because there's a lot of lenses that we look through in life, right? To judge whether something is good or bad. That's That lens is a perspective. And so when we're looking at our kids, when we're looking at our family, some of the lenses that we might look through, we might look through the lens of success. So is my kid successful academically? Am I being a good father because my kid is successful academically? Or is my older child financially successful? Are they successful in their career? Did I go to do a good job? Or I might look at them and, and as an athlete and say, are they successful athletically? Did I do a good job as a dad? Another lens that we might look through is social standing. So I might look at my kids and say, who are their friends? And where do they stand in society? 
or who are their enemies. Sometimes that's just as telling, right? What material things do they have, and, and where does that put them in the hierarchy of society? Who is the girlfriend? Who's the boyfriend? Am I doing a good job as a dad? Or I might look at my kid through the lens of sports. What sports are they? Are they playing a sport? What sports are they playing? What's their position? What's their record? Are they a four-year starter as a senior? Are they on the varsity squad as a freshman? Are they going to get a D1 scholarship? Or they're going to turn that down for a better school? Am I being a good dad? Well, none of those is going to give you a true reflection of how you're doing. Each one of those has its place, and none of them is inherently wrong. But none of them gives you the full picture. Because in the end, what matters is, is your child, whatever age, walking with Christ. That's, and that's not completely on you as a dad. That has to be said. At some point, your child has to make their decision for themselves. But you can point them in the right direction. And you can point them in the wrong direction. And to know how to do that, you have to know what that right direction is. And so that's what I want to look at today. Um, I want to look and see what the Bible says about being a biblical father. And I can't do this myself. All right. So I'm praying that God will speak through me, through his word, and use me. So if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pause now. Focusing on you. I pray that you would speak to us. Help me to be clear. <laughs> Help me to be calm. Open our hearts, Lord. And we thank you for your word as we open it up. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so there's a lot of different scriptures that we could go to in the Bible, but the one that we're going to go to is the book of Ephesians. And if you are using one of the Bibles there in front of you in the pews, it is page 1162. We're going to go to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to go to chapter 5. Ephesians 5, and we're going to start... In verse 22, Ephesians 5, 22, and it's a fairly long passage. So Ephesians 5, 22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Amen. Let's go home. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, it's a good thing God didn't stop there, right? Because we would have really made a mess of it. But he didn't. He goes on. Picking up at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then going on into chapter 6 a little bit. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Again, amen. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, you may wonder why I read all of that when really only that last, that last verse would seem to apply to fathers. But I would argue that that entire passage applies to being a biblical father. And so my first point that I want to bring up is that this passage shows us what a biblical family looks like. Now, I know. I know that it doesn't always work out like this. Because we're dealing with people and we're dealing with sin. And this is God's perfect plan to have a husband and have a wife and have their children. And he established that from the very beginning. Um, verse 31, Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to or cleave to his wife. Right? And it doesn't always work out that way. And I get that. And even in those instances where that's not the way that it works out, God is working but we would be remiss to not recognize that this is the plan. This is the model that is set before us. So that is really the reason why I read 22 through 24, besides a little laughing. Wife, husband, kids. That's a biblical family. My next point, and honestly, we're going to spend a lot of time here, is husband, love your wives. Just think about that. What does that mean? And if you really don't know what it means to love your wife, ask her. That's a good place to start. Or there's another good place to start. I'm not going to turn there, but you can just write down the reference of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you've probably heard at least portions of this in every wedding that you've been to. Starting at about verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Well, there's a couple weeks' work for me. Love does not envy, love does not boast, love endures, does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Read through that a couple times. You'll get some ideas. And Paul doesn't just say, love your wife. Now, he didn't let us off that easy. He said, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Oh, that raises the bar a little bit, doesn't it? And not only as Christ loved the church, but how? Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. What does that mean? Now, sometimes we jump on that and, and we, we go to the Christ died on the cross for me. And I, I, don't want to, I don't want to discredit that in any way because absolutely that's true. And us guys will take that and we're like, yeah, I'd take a bullet for my wife. I'd do it. 
Yeah, so would I. I would jump in front of a bus and push her out of the way. Okay, I would do that. But that's kind of how we're programmed. We kind of almost like that hero aspect of being a man, right? And that's one piece of what it means that Christ gave himself up for the church. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. You see, Christ didn't begin his existence when he came to earth as a little baby in Bethlehem. Christ has always existed. John 1 talks about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we read on, we find out that John's talking, the Word is Jesus. So in the beginning means forever. Jesus has been with God. And Jesus was God. And he says that all things were created by him. And nothing was ever created that wasn't created through him. So Jesus had a lot of power. Elsewhere we read that not only was everything created by him, but everything was created for him. Jesus had a lot of glory. And then not only was everything created by him and and for him, but everything that is, has its, um, it is sustained through him. So if Jesus were not interacting in the world right now, it would blow up. It would just cease to exist. He's holding it together. Jesus has a lot of power. And he had all of that long before Bethlehem. And that's what Jesus gave up. See, Jesus didn't just live for 33 years and then die on the cross. For eternity before that, he existed on a throne in heaven at the right hand of God. And he stepped away from that. He gave himself up for the church. And every day for 33 years, I'd be like, oh man, are you kidding me? I remember what it was like. I remember heaven. I'm going back. And he could have. Jesus had a choice every day. But he didn't exercise that right that he had. He chose to give himself up daily because of his love for the church, his love for you. And just like that, we are supposed to love our wives. You see, it's not just about being willing to take a bullet. God forbid that ever should come about. No, it's about giving yourself up every day. What are you willing to give up for the sake of your wife? Would you be willing to give up sports? Maybe not play in that softball tournament that weekend. Maybe not go golfing. Maybe not buy that set of golf clubs. Maybe not even join the club because your wife needs you. Would you be willing to sacrifice that fishing trip? Or maybe that rod and reel that you think that you need because of that trip or even the boat. Be willing to give that up for the sake of your wife? Would you be willing to give up the overtime that you're working so that you can buy those golf clubs or you can buy that boat because you need to spend more time with your wife? Or conversely, would you be willing to work the overtime to help support a special need that your wife needs or a special need that your wife has? Would you be willing to pass over a promotion because you know that the requirements of that promotion would take you away from your wife and she needs you at home? 
Would you be willing to give up success and wealth and possessions and authority and whatever else it is that you cling to so tightly for the sake of your wife? That's part of what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. See, dying for your wife isn't the hard part, right? It's the everydayness of love that really becomes challenging. So what would it mean for you to love your wife as Christ loved the church? In the same way Christ loved the church, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. My next point here is similar. Just love your kids. Now, this passage doesn't actually come right out and say, love your kids. Picking up um, chapter 6, verse 4, it says, do not provoke your children to anger. Or another translation will read, do not exasperate your children. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, what does that mean, do not provoke your children to anger? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean you're not going to make them mad. Right? Any, any parent out there never made their children mad? Yeah, I don't see any hands, right? You're going to make your children angry. If you don't make your children angry, you're probably not being the father that you need to be. Because it does say to discipline your children. So what does this mean? Well, in part, it means when you discipline your children, you don't just punish them. So punishment has the idea of making your child suffer for having done wrong. I told you to do this. You didn't do it. And because you didn't do what I told you to do, you're going to suffer for it. This is your punishment. That's not done in love. That's not what discipline is. Discipline has the idea of I want to teach my child to do the right thing next time because I love them. I want something better for them. And isn't that what love is? I want what's best for that other person. That's why I'm going to discipline them. The Bible says in Proverbs 13:24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. If you don't discipline your children, you, you're not loving them. God even used the word hate. That's a strong word. But if you do love them, you are diligent to discipline them. Out of love. Teaching them to do the right thing. To make a better choice the next time. That's part of being a biblical father. Knowing the difference. Proverbs um, 3.11 and 12 says that this is the same model as how Christ or as how God interacts with us. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Love your kids. And not because they've earned it. Because God loves you, and you didn't earn his love. You can't. There is nothing that you can do to earn the love of God. It's a free gift. 
And that's how you are supposed to love. That's how I am supposed to love my kids. Freely. When Christ died for us, he didn't wait for us to be good enough. When God sent his son, he didn't wait for us to be good enough. He loved us while we were still sinners. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So when you're in that moment with your kid and you're like, love them. Love them. If you feel like there's some of these areas that you've struggled with, maybe you haven't gotten it right every time, you're not alone. I know I feel that way. And there's actually some people in the Bible, some guys in the Bible who didn't get it right. If you can believe that. I mean, people in the Bible, they did everything perfect, right? They didn't. I mentioned some guys at the beginning from the book of Genesis. We remember the good stories about them. Let's just take a look at Adam. Start at the very beginning. So Adam, the first man. He fell to sin, right? He fell to temptation. He stood side by side with his wife as she was tempted by the devil. And Adam had been told by God, you don't eat that fruit. Satan said, no, God didn't say that. Eve said, and Adam said, I'm not getting involved. (laughs) You do what you're going to do. The Bible says that Adam stood by his wife as she made that choice. It was on him. He didn't give up himself to love his wife. And that sin has been passed on from generation to generation, even to today. And one of the consequences of that sin is that Adam's oldest son killed his brother. That's not a very good start. We talked about Noah. Noah did a pretty good job. I mean, he must have, right? He was a righteous man. And his kids must have been doing okay because they had grown up and they had families of their own. And God looked at them and said, you know what? As a family, I'm going to preserve you. The rest of the world is wicked, but I'm going to preserve you. And so they built the ark and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And they they were in there for months. Finally, the water recedes and they find dry ground and they get out. Noah, Noah no more than gets off the boat. And he gets drunk. And he sins. And in his sin... He led, he set up the, he set up the environment for his son to sin. And that sin had consequences. So even though Noah was a righteous man and was preserved from the flood, he and his family, he didn't do it perfectly. Well, what about Father Abraham? He's been known as Father Abraham for over 3,000 years. He must have done it right. I think he did in a lot of ways. But good old Abraham was walking down the road one day with his wife, and she was beautiful. And they're in a not-so-good neighborhood. And he looks at her and he says, oh, you're going to get me killed. You're so beautiful, you're dangerous. 
And so he said, you know what? If somebody comes up to us and they want to know who you are, tell them you're my sister. Now, why would he do that? Well, he knew that if he told the, told the enemy that this was his wife, they'd just kill him and take her. So at first it sounds like, oh, yeah, he's doing a good thing. He's protecting his wife. Well, he's not. He's protecting himself because they're going to take her anyway. They're just going to leave him alone. And that's exactly what happens. No, she's my sister. Whatever, take her. Now, God protected Abram and Sarah, right? And nothing bad happened to them. So you would think that he'd learn his lesson. He didn't. He did it again. Same situation. He did the same thing. And then, like father, like son, his son did it too. So father Abraham, he didn't do everything right either. In fact, you can go through any father figure in the Bible. And whether recorded or not, they fell. And you can look at any father in this room. You can look at any father who ever has been. And they didn't do it perfectly. In our past series, we were looking, um, we had a picture of a target. And, and the center of that, the bullseye of that target is the holiness of God, right? And anything outside of that, no matter how close, but anything outside of that is sin. And dads, we've all missed the mark. And just like if we only read Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, we wouldn't get the whole picture. If we left it right there, we wouldn't get the whole picture. I wouldn't have any hope because I failed. But there is a hope. And that next slide will show us that that hope is that Christ died for you. Just stop and think about that. What does that mean that Christ died for you? Christ died for me. You see, I've made mistakes. I've missed that mark. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person has fallen, has missed the mark. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So that means because all have sinned, everyone has earned death. And that doesn't mean the death of this body. That's talking about spiritual death. And that is an eternity in hell. That's what death means. That's, that's what you earn for the sin that you've committed. I am so glad for the second half of Romans 6.23. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our hope. Because if it were to depend on me, if it were to depend on you, there's no hope at all. But there is absolutely hope in Jesus Christ. Because there's two options. You've already sinned. You can't change that. 
So you either pay for it yourself, eternity in hell, or you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and he pays the price. What's it going to be? There's no greater gift that you could receive or that you could give your family on Father's Day than to make this decision. Because even though this is our last slide and this is my last point for the day, this is really the first step. Because if you don't do this, you can't do those other things. You can't have a biblical family if you're not a follower of Christ. You cannot love your wife without having believed in Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit within you. You just can't. You can't be the father to your children that you're supposed to be unless you are a Christian father. So as the praise team comes up, guys, I want you to think about that. Where do you stand? If you're not sure, or if you know, no, I, I don't, I, I haven't accepted Christ as my Savior, don't leave here today until you talk to somebody. I'll be up here. I know Matt would be willing to be up here. Brandon will be up here. There's a whole bunch of guys. I don't, if 20 guys came up here, we'll take care of you. So you make that decision and don't leave here without having that assurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples of failure so that we know that we're not alone. And Lord, ultimately, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for hope. Lord, I pray for any man out there right now who's with us, who is online. God, if they don't know you, get a hold of them. Give them the courage. Help them to be a man and to step up and to make this decision. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for getting me through this today. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.